Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing Never Kiss a Duke by Megan Frampton. So this was published in 2020 and is the first in the Hazards of Dukes series. And you may be thinking, Hazards? Is that about danger or gambling? And if you read historical romance novels, you know. I was like, you know very well, it's about gambling. (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. Should we just get straight into the book jacket before we get into this book? Because I know you have a lot to talk about, Lane. Just start reading. Everything he had ever known was a lie. Sebastian, Duke of Hasford, has a title, wealth, privilege, and plenty of rakish charm. Until he discovers the only thing that truly belongs to him is his charm. An accident of birth has turned him into plain Mr. De Silva. Now Sebastian is flummoxed as to what to do with his life until he stumbles into a gambling den owned by Miss Ivy, a most fascinating young lady who hires him on the spot. Working with a boss has never seemed so enticing. Everything tells her he's a risk she has to take. Two years ago, Ivy gambled everything that was precious to her and won. Now the owner of London's most intriguing gambling house, Ivy is competent, assured, and measured. Until she meets Mr. De Silva, who stirs feelings she didn't realize she had. Can she keep her composure around her newest employee? They vow to keep their partnership strictly business, but just one kiss makes them realize that with each passing day and night, There's nothing as tempting as what is forbidden. (laughs) I mean, it's okay. You know what? This is not a terrible book jacket, in my opinion. I think it accurately represents the book. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. In content and in writing style, and I say that sort of as an insult. I really like this book, guys. (laughs) <laughs> I just want to put that out here right now. I really and enjoyed this one. I will totally admit that I was biased against it for a reason we will get into. Uh, before we get into it, what is the random number that we generated this week? 38. So we each wrote random number summaries composed of only 38 words. I'll start with mine and then Lane can start hers because I think it leads into what she wants to discuss. So here's mine. If a duke's not a duke, what's his purpose in life? Apparently serving as COO for the baddest boss bitch around will do the trick. Also as fairy godmother for his sister and sex god in the casino. So your summary touches on the one thing I really liked about this book. It's what I liked too. And I like kind of loved it. Yep. What's your summary? In case I was too subtle, guys, it's sex god in the casino. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So my summary, a woman gambled away by her dad reclaims her autonomy through ownership of a gambling hell where a lost aristocrat finds an identity. Historical accuracy matters to me, and it takes like two seconds to use Google, people. (laughs) Okay. Major. Well, one of the tropes in this one is inheritance shenanigans. That's where the historical inaccuracy falls. It's it's extremely inaccurate. I do not disagree. 
And both uh, of these characters do everything uh, for their sisters. Like times a billion. Times a million. So Sebastian's younger sister. Oh, sorry, baby. Um, Older just, sister. No, my Sebastian oh. just looked at me like, <laughs> what's up, lady? Um, his older sister was treated as basically Cinderella by his mother, even though his older sister was his mother's niece <laughs> and stepdaughter, treated like shit. The whole reason he was excited to be Duke, not the whole reason, but a lot of it was just to finally give her the treatment that a Duke's daughter deserves. So yeah, they are half-siblings and cousins. Yep. It's fine. And her younger sister is the more traditional romance novel trope of, I may suffer, so my sister has the society debut that I never wanted nor could have. Yep. Uh, I put this in my summary. She was gambled away as a person. Yes. Literally. Uh, So he kind of has a midlife crisis in this book. Yeah. Kind of enjoyed it. Quarter, would you call it a midlife crisis? Quarter life crisis? He's not 30 yet. I just call it an identity crisis. Identity crisis, yeah. Oh my god, he's not 30 yet. <laughs> he's not. Try into my whiskey. I know. Okay. Um, he has a reluctant heir. Yeah, that is correct. One of my favorite parts in the book is <laughs> they get hungry. But it's actually for food. <laughs> they require sustenance so that they can get up the energy to continue fucking, basically. And I loved it. Random digression. I loved how often this book called sex fucking. Uh-huh. Loved it. And I don't know why. I don't know how to quantify why. But I just enjoyed how direct they both were about what they wanted and didn't try to overstate what they were to each other and also were using it as like a description of what exactly they were looking for from a given encounter uh-huh uh, it, i have not seen a romance novel use fucking so effectively the the physical interactions in this book worked really well for both of us i think and the way they use those situations to express who they were and where they were with one another. It didn't ever feel gratuitous. Right. Even as it was explicit. Even, even as it was, I mean, actually probably gratuitous, it, it still worked for the story. Yes. It furthered um, the story. We've talked about this several times, but yeah, I, I think that it really worked here. It totally did. She has a United Colors of Benetton staff. And what I mean by that is not only is she rescuing lost souls and taking in people that other people wouldn't for whatever reason, but it's also made clear that she has women on staff in positions women couldn't hold. She has men of color on staff in position men of color weren't usually trusted in. And I did feel like it was a little bit token. It reminded me a lot, actually, of Sarah McLean's last book. Daring in the Duke, because the same exact thing happened in her um, social club for women. A lot of the, they were all women who worked there, and a lot of them were women of color. And I think we actually had almost the same um, discussion when we talked about that book. 
But yeah, I'm now calling the trope United Colors of Benetton Staff. Yeah. And I, I would say it's a pretty recent trope. It's got to do with the wokeness. Yep. Absolutely. And I'm not complaining about the wokeness. But I do think what we constantly go back to when we end up having this conversation is I want it to be more than lip service. Right. And when it's just a statement of, I hire people based on their worth, it ends up coming off a little bit. Like, I don't see color. I don't see gender. Yeah. And, like, I think we're all kind of at the point where we know that's not the point. Yeah. I I do think that romance authors, any author really, um, but also it's kind of especially romance authors, are between a rock and a hard place because they, a lot of them are white women. If they wrote a character of color as the main character, they would come under so much scrutiny and so much criticism. At the same time, if they don't have any characters of color, they come under the same criticism. And then even if they do have characters of color, then we're like, oh, it's a token. So it's very tough, I think. I think, but I think the way to, to not tokenize supporting characters is to give them a backstory. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be a long one. It doesn't have to be textual. I met Samuel here doing this. We bonded over this and I offered him a position. Could have been half a page. But it gives him more of a backstory than, oh good, I'm glad Sebastian didn't freak out because he's black. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, like, I'm not trying to disagree with you. I'm just saying I think it is a very fine line that authors have to walk. Right, between appropriation and speaking for a group right. they're not a part of and erasure. Completely mm -hmm. agree with you. I just want to call out when, like, I appreciate the effort, but it wasn't good enough. Yeah. All right. I am a white girl who doesn't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah. All right, so... <laughs> Let's talk about the, the conceit of this novel. So the foundational conceit of this novel. Sebastian was a Duke. Now he's not a Duke. How did that work? What happened? Which of us cared about it? <laughs> As many of you will recall, um, Henry VIII ended... <laughs> England's Catholicism because he wanted to divorce his dead brother's wife who he had married. So he was like, hey, England, let me divorce this girl because she fucked my brother and that means we shouldn't have been allowed to get married even though we had a papal dispensation. So this was a law in England that you could that a marriage between an individual and their deceased spouse's sibling was a voidable marriage until like the middle of the 1800s. But voidable does not mean void. It means that if you found out that your spouse had married you under the false pretense and that they actually were your dead sibling's spouse or your potentially dead sibling. <laughs> Either her. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess it's true. Your dead spouse is sibling or your dead sibling spouse. Goes both ways. His mother would have been dead sibling spouse. Anyway. Anyway. Um, both. 
Meg and I were both right. So <laughs> let's make um, that clear. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to be clear that like, we all know this is a law from British history because like Henry VIII. So anyway, um, you had to say like, hey, I want to divorce this person. Or somebody else has to bring charges and say, like, for example, say you were married to someone you shouldn't have been married to and had issue and you're like fourth cousin twice removed who otherwise would be your heir. Could say, I have reason to prove that these two people aren't legally one. But it had to be proven. It had to be taken to court. The marriage had to be deemed void. And in most cases, both parties had to be living. In rare cases, one party had to be living. Sebastian's parents are both fucking dead. Yeah. They only found out about this, the fact that his mother was his father's first wife's sister. From letters that the estate manager, lawyer, went through after they both died. Tragically, right. TM, he's now Judge Orphan. If you're wondering if, like, the twist in this book is that they realize that this is not legal and that he should still be the Duke... Because his parents' marriage was never void, and therefore he is the legal heir. No. All right. This is what I wrote. I don't care about historical accuracy. Give me a man who defers to his woman boss and also wants to bone her real bad, and I'll read this book. <laughs> I know it's terrible. I know it's terrible. I'm reading this book. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't really sound plausible to me. For me, the point of this was that he was the Duke. Now he's not the Duke anymore. What's he going to do with his life, right? That could never have happened. I mean, it could have happened, but it would, he couldn't have a reluctant heir, and it wouldn't have been this way. How do you get de-duped? The only way that I know of in history, listeners, feel free to correct me, is having the monarch strip you. Well, let's say title. they found out that his parents were not actually married. Not that they had avoidable marriage, but that his mother had tricked his father into thinking There'd they were married. There'll be not. a statute of limitations on that. Yeah, but then his heir gets him to do it. So that's what I'm saying. You can't have a reluctant heir. Right. So. Even then, there'd still be an, an amount of time at which it wouldn't be relevant anymore. Like right, the, but this this did relevant, happen like immediately following. The right, death. But the relevant parties are both deceased. You've never brought this up previously. Right, but they discover it immediately following the death. You find out the thing, the heir is like, you are not. You know what I mean? I think that there are ways that you could make it happen. Anyway, basically, she did not choose a way that could actually have happened. Correct. But I liked the rest of the book enough that I was like, okay, I know that this is not accurate, but I'm just going to enjoy the book. Because the rest of it was, in my opinion, so enjoyable. I really had a really good time reading it. So beyond my frustration at the historical inaccuracy, which once again, I will totally admit, colored my perception of this book. I thought this book did a lot of tell and don't show and not about the sex. The sex was great. Spoiling <laughs> where we're getting. But you were told a lot. They were both like funny and witty and intelligent. 
And one of the things that proved she was funny was that in her gaming hell, she had pictures of dogs playing poker. <laughs> yes, she was so dumb, and I loved it. <laughs> I just, even their repartee wasn't witty. It wasn't smart. It wasn't sharp. And so... I did not have very many issues with it, but... I just, to me, I felt like, to me, giant disclaimer, if you give me characters that are supposed to be, like, their back and forth is what brings them together. You better give me really good back and forth. I didn't feel like I had it. Okay. So Ivy runs a casino. She runs a gambling den. Her gambling den is special because anyone can gamble there as long as they have the money. (laughs) So I both like really enjoyed it. And at the same time thought it was so stupid and funny. They're like, oh, she's so democratic. <laughs> I mean, it is the way democracy works in America. So you got to pay to play, boys. <laughs> yeah. I think this kind of goes back to the conversation we've had often, so I don't want to beat a dead horse, about women finding independence through capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I think this is sort of the most explicit form of that we've seen. Like, she defines equality as money. Mm-hmm. And she's not ashamed of it. And I actually think I liked it, the execution better here. Yes, I liked it. Than I have in a lot of them. Agreed. I liked it better here. I think because she equated being successful financially and in her chosen career because she had been in a situation of dependency before. And it wasn't like, it, let's, let's compare it with um, the heiress gets a duke. Yes. Right. Where she had never been in a situation where she was actually dependent, like maybe she was at heart, but she was in a a situation of privilege the entire time. I also think Ivy is under the impression. Whether true or not, and the text doesn't really explore it, that had her father been better with money. She would have been. More able to make choices about her own life. Mm hmm. That may not be true. Her father, had he not gambled her away, may still have chosen to marry her off to a total D-bag for whatever reason. It's not really explored. Her father's clearly a gambling addict, and that's all you really know about him. Yeah. But I, I understand why she associates financial freedom and, weirdly, like, ethical gambling. Right. With... Like, what she values. Yes. Uh, I also, one of the things I liked is that she's attracted to him because he knows, he figures out when he goes too far and can pull himself back in. And apologizes when he doesn't. Yes. I, I, basically, this is a guy who's used to everyone deferring to him, right? He was a duke. He was like the top nobleman of all the noblemen. And now he's got to learn um, how to defer to someone, how to apologize. Um, He is not the boss. She is the boss. He has great ideas that she implements, but he's got to do what she says. I don't know. This worked for me. I know you maybe had some issues with it. My only real issue with it is he explicitly in the text thinks or says things along the line of, 
I can't risk my position. Mm-hmm. So I can't say X, Y, and Z, push back here, make out with her right now. Some of those things are good thoughts. But he's still ultimately, for all that he lost the dukedom, in great graces with his cousin who took over the dukedom from him, his best friend's still a duke. Both of them are regularly offering him places to stay, pocket money, what ha- positions. Like, he's not, he doesn't actually need this job. No. Like, he feels like he does for his own self-worth. But I felt like putting the language of the actual downtrodden and desperate into the mouth of a privileged white guy without the author explicitly sort of forcing you to recognize this is an indication that this character doesn't actually have a sense of his own circumstances if he's, like, comparing himself to someone who actually has to work. Like, I didn't love it. I thought it was woke language in the mouth of the wrong character. Yeah, now... That sort of defeated the purpose. I did not see it as being woke. I just saw it as him learning how to live with, under new circumstances. But I he didn't he have to learn it. Like, he wasn't actually desperate. Right. I don't think he was ever acting desperate. I think he was thinking to himself, I have a job. I need to do this if I want to keep the job. And he wanted to keep the job. He didn't have to keep the job. All right. The end of the book was fine. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. He basically is like, so what I did like about it was he was like, I, he wants to marry Ivy, of course, because they fall in love. Spoiler alert. They end up together. (laughs) Right. So, but his whole thing is he wants to, he's like, I'm going to make all this money so that I can support my wife. Right. So he's thinking his whole plan is I'm going to work here. I'm going to earn enough money to invest in some shipping ventures and then I'm going to be rich and then we can get married. And at the end of the book, he realizes that this goal of his is just utterly unrealistic. Like he's not going to make enough money to be rich, you know? Mm-hmm. And he he has to learn like actually maybe the life we have is a good life, like we both like it. And she's my boss, and that's cool. I don't know. I was just really into it, Lane. <laughs> third act breakup. There was a third act breakup. So that's Never part love that, that I did not love. That said, my usual criticism does not apply. <laughs> All right. Content warnings. We already talked about historical accuracy. If historical accuracy is very, very important to you, probably want to skip this book. I will just say it. Only other thing I'd mention is he very casually thinks about selling sex. Right. As one of his options. I think this is where this comment in conjunction with what I talked about previously is what really rubbed me the wrong way. He's like, well, I suppose if I can't find employment, I can prostitute myself. And it's like, where the fuck do you think that's ever going to be a necessity? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, serious. Like, that is seriously, like, at what point do I get to where I begin figuring out how to prostitute myself? Yeah. All right, let's talk about the high point of this book. This book, you guys, was extremely sexy. Mm Mm-hmm. I have nothing bad to say about any of the sex. It was 
I, okay, I'm normally not into like power differential, especially boss employee. I yes. will say whenever it's reversed though, and especially in a historical setting, the woman is the boss and the man is like her tutor or you know, not her tutor, but the tutor of her child. We really hate age differences, just so everyone knows. The tutor of her child, for example. It, like we're talking about tutor versus governess romance, right? Right. Anyway, I think that because the man inherently has like male privilege, the fact that there is a power differential gets a little evened out for me. Well, and this book takes it even further in that for all that he is currently down on his luck, he's still high society. Absolutely. And they it's pointed out as well, like in the book. Yeah. So okay. So basically they make out a few times like really hot and heavy in her office. Very sexy. I love, this is gonna sound weird, but I mean it sincerely, how much his attraction to her validates her. Yeah. And sometimes that rubs me the wrong way when someone is like, I didn't realize I was pretty until he was into me. I'm like rolling my eyes and super pissed off about it. But she's not insecure. So it's not coming from a place of I never felt attractive until he was attracted to me. No, no, no. And, and the way it was done here just really worked for me. It's it's a it's different. Um also basically the entire casino becomes their like sex room. There is discussion at points in the book, not just of the casino, of them like christening every surface. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I love that ambition. Mm-hmm. I mean, why own a gambling hell if you can't christen every service? Christen every surface. I don't have an answer. Like, you do it. You you christen the fuck out of it. Mm-hmm. And I will just say that it does pass my blowjob test. Yep. <laughs> I... The other thing here for me... My complaints about the two characters and, like, the structure of the plot didn't make either of them unlikable. Right. So it wasn't, like, my dislike of the characters tainted the sex for me. I liked the characters fine. I thought they were well-suited. It was wider context stuff that I wasn't fond of. So, like, the sex really still worked for me. I want to make that, like, I have no complaints. I have no comment. This was one of the sexier books we've read in a long time. Absolutely. This book is extremely sexy. So I think we're going to be continuing with the Hazards of Duke series, which should um, be fun. The other problem I have, just to put it out now, is Dukes of Hazard, Hazards of Dukes. This author thinks she's clever when I'm just rolling my eyes. I know. I, I don't know how much is... I don't know how much Herbers is her, the editor. Right. 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 It's hard to, it's is very that, hard. Is that, that's a Brina Jeffries trilogy series where everyone is named after a reality TV show that has no applicability to the plot at all. And we're just like, why is this happening? That was the worst part. That, that series, the worst part of that series, and it's not a great series, <clears throat> is that the, the reality part didn't have anything. The reality show title had nothing, zero, zilch, absolutely nothing to do with the contents of the book. Nothing. Nothing. 
And it was called, remember, what is it called? The Duke Dynasty series. Which I'm grateful the series has nothing to do with Duck Dynasty, but <laughs> why? But this series is going to have nothing to do with Dukes and Hazards. No, but it does have, at least the first one, Hazards. I'm guessing all the books are going to be, have something to do with Miss Ivy's. Right, they're all going to have something to do with gambling, so they're playing on the Hazards, but the fact that it's a Dukes of Hazard pun. I know, I do know. Yeah. I recommend this book for all that I just went off on this, but like, I just wish someone had told me this is wrong. Stop frantically Googling. I mean, guys, I spent hours just, just like proving that I wasn't overthinking this and that no, I was right. No, Lane is right. Just go into it knowing that like the central conceit on which the entire situation for the plot turns is not historically accurate. And you have to be okay with him accepting it and not fighting it. Right. Yes. So not only is it wrong, but the Duke isn't in any way trying to prove it wrong. And he, and his reluctant heir, who doesn't want to be Duke at all, is also not trying to prove it wrong. I kept waiting for the solicitor to be evil. Right, right. I mean, I was like wondering, I really was wondering, I thought the third act thing was going to be... He's really you the know, Duke. He's really the Duke. How can he marry Miss Ivy? I mean, I will say, this is a, this is a, historical romance is a genre where people get pissed off if people are dancing the cotillion in the 1700s. I'm not that level. I just no. want to get very clear to our readers. Like, I am, like I said, you go run off to Gretna Green two years after that would have been illegal, fine. I'm not, whatever. I'll mention but it, but that's as far as if, I know. If you are one of those readers who really hates it when someone is wearing, a man is wearing pajamas, and not a nightshirt. Or if a man unbuttons his shirt all the way, right, and opens it in the front, or someone is dancing the cotillion in 1793, you do not want to read this book. I will just put it out there. And if you are more than that, just like a general history buff about like inheritance law, which most romance readers have picked up a casual knowledge of, yeah. this still might stand out. Yeah. I mean, if you can overlook it, though, I think this book is very fun. I want to read more by this author. I don't think I'll be reading this book again. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and check us out on Instagram or Goodreads at Plotris.